0: Well, it was a beautiful, um, beautiful day in Wheaton, Illinois, and as I often did on this particular day, I went down into the basement where I kept my bike and where our washer and dryer were and our big sink downstairs, uh, the laundry table, and I grabbed my bike and hopped on it. I, I hauled it upstairs, got outside, hopped on it, started riding to school. And uh, I, I distinctly remember passing some neighbors, giving a wave. It's just a beautiful day. I, I pulled up to the stop sign on the corner of Washington college. and college. To my left is College Church. the Perhaps the most influential evangelical church in the region. Caddy corner to me on the right is Wheaton College and all its beauty and all the things that God does here. Just, I was so, just, over here to the right is the Billy Graham Center, just a majestic building, the things that God is doing through his people, and for whatever reason, I happened to look down and hanging off the back of my bike was a very colorful pair of women's underwear. It somehow had fallen off the laundry table onto my bike and attached itself like a flag that was blowing in the wind behind me as I uh, was on my way to go prepare to be a pastor. So I quickly grabbed them, I put them in my pocket, and I went to class thinking, oh boy, the trouble that might come about if somebody finds out that I'm carrying a pair of women's underwear in my pocket. Uh, So, um, thankfully, no harm done, as far as I know. But sometimes, you know, we find ourselves in situations in which it sure would have been nice if someone had helped us uh, be aware of our dirty laundry that is hanging out uh, before we kind of expose it to the entire neighborhood. And... um, you know, there's, it's kind of like the responsibility that we have as a church body to take care of one another, to help one another know when something's going on that's like, it's not good, it's not healthy, it's not good for you, it's not good for the, these cute little kids that are in the community as I'm, you know, cruising by. Okay, so the church body has this kind of responsibility to take care of one another, to serve one another when things aren't going right. And we've been talking about this for the last, this is the third week now, this concept of, of church discipline. Now, church discipline, when it's, when it's full-blown, actually requires that the church body, in our service to one another, requires, at times, a person who is unrepentant in their sin. People have gone to this person, and, and they just won't turn from it. And it sometimes requires that that brother or sister is removed from the church body. You can believe it. And you should believe it because this is what the scriptures teach. Now, in our passage today in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we are um, finding that, that Paul is still dealing with this same issue. In fact, for three paragraphs the same issue keeps coming up again and again and again and the main point of the last paragraph is yet again the same the main point and you see it in verse 13 of chapter 5 the last part of the verse it reads like this purge the evil person from among you so it's the main point the conclusion of this final paragraph on the section The section is still building for the case of the removal of the incestuous man. So, the past two weeks, what I've done is I've tried to just say, okay, why is this good for the person? Well, Let me just back up. The incestuous man, if you haven't been following with us, here's what's going on in Corinth. There's a man who is sleeping with his father's wife, sleeping with his stepmom. Paul says, we've got to remove this guy from the church body. So the last two weeks, what we've been talking about, week one, I said, why is this good for this particular brother? Why is it good for him? And then last week, I talked about why it's good for the church body, why this is the most loving thing for everybody involved. And uh, if you would like more kind of nuance, careful care, walking through this, uh, this, this issue, I point you back to the, the messages over the past two weeks. Um, two weeks ago one of the things that I talked about was the process. This four-step process of church discipline, which we went to Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. The process goes something like this. Jesus says, if, if, if you see your brother in this situation where he has offended you, or you can, you can generalize the, the, the uh, principle, if you see a brother who's in sin, you go to him in private. Talk with him about this. If he turns from it, you've won your brother. There's a restoration that's taken place. The process of church discipline is over. If he doesn't turn from it, you take two or three others with you. Uh, One or two others with you, rather. And uh, the point is, apply a little more pressure with the appeal. Please turn from this. This is not good for you. It's not good for the church body. If he turns, you've won your brother over. process is over. He's restored. If he still won't turn, the next step is to bring him before the church, Jesus says. And again, you're strengthening the appeal. If he turns, you've won your brother over. The process is over. And if he won't turn, then, fourth step, you must remove the brother or sister, from the body. And one of the main practical issues that comes up with this that I haven't been able to talk about yet is this. How do you have a corrective conversation with somebody? I said a couple weeks ago, most full-scale church discipline is avoided when people are able to give and receive correction at that first level of going to someone in private. But it just leaves the question, how do you have that kind of conversation? This is hard stuff. How do you, like practically, what does the conversation look like? So I want to take just a minute to, I know we're at the, it's the very beginning of the sermon and I'm already going to jump into a lot of application, but I want this just think of it as a follow-up from what we've been talking about a few weeks ago. What does that conversation look like? I want to give you some real practical things here. And, and let me set it up by, by kind of throwing this out there. There is an art to this. There's an art to learning how to build into your church a culture where giving and receiving correction is something that's done skillfully. And I would say that the art requires two crucial things. Two crucial things in the art of learning how to give and receive correction. And one is this. You, have, you must have one party who is willing to go and have the corrective talk with humility. must have humility in the goer. One party who is going in humility. And two, you must have a second party who is receiving in humility. You have to build this into the church body. These are, what thi- these are the kinds of things that allow these conversations to take place and be effective in the church. So let me just uh, stick that out there as kind of the the big picture uh, environment that these kinds of things have to take place in. Now let me talk about what does it look like. And I'm going here off of the lead of a guy named Mickey Connolly. He wrote a chapter in a book edited by C.J. Mahaney called Why Small Groups? Mickey Connolly wrote a chapter called The Art of Care and Correction. And he gives us five steps. I think it's really wise biblical counsel. um, And I think it will will benefit from this. The fifth step has eight steps. (laughs) Okay. So I would recommend you write this down. Write it down. Go home. Type it up. Put it in a folder of just helpful, practical, biblical wisdom.
1: Step number one, step number one, overlook the sin, if possible.
0: If it's possible, overlook it. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. It's his glory to overlook an offense. Someone accidentally says or does something that's kind of hurtful to you, and they're not aware of it, if it can roll off your shoulders, it's a glory to overlook the offense. If it's not going to interrupt your ability to have a relationship with them, if it's if it was just uh, something that was a little bit out of character, or, or something that wasn't this big public... Um, Divisive thing, overlook it if if it's possible. This is someone who accidentally like comes over to your house and uses the good towels in your bathroom, leaves a big stain on it or something. Okay, overlook it if possible. They 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 make so they make a joke. It's a little harsh. It's not really their tendency to do this. It just it was kind of out of character. And if you can let it roll off your shoulders, if it's not going to hurt your relationship with this person, it's a glory to overlook an offense. This is the person that, that uh, you know, after the service, they throw the, uh, re- the recyclable in the trash can. And, uh, you know, just, if you can overlook it, um, uh, yeah, is that, is that, you, you're going to have to talk about it not in terms of, of recycling if that's the case. We'll get to that in a second. If you can overlook the offense, do it. But sometimes you can't move on. You, you know this sometimes you can't move on sometimes you know this is not we're not going to be able to have a good relationship after that conversation or or you just see something that's shocking, or you see something where somebody just appears to be really stuck in some ongoing sin it's not you're, this is not rolling off the shoulders this is not uh, this is not an issue that's going to allow for be good for the church it's not going to be good for your relationship it's not going to be good for them sometimes. You're going to have to have a talk. So step two: clearly define the problem in biblical terms. Clearly define it in biblical terms. You don't uh, confront somebody by going up and saying, "You know, I noticed that you're wearing sandals today," or uh, "I know that you have," I, I notice you have bad breath
1: today, or. Um, you know, I've been realizing that you drink caffeine.
0: You have to be able to biblically define the issue. Now, wearing sandals, you'll catch this, wearing sandals might be
1: a sin. I have an example. At the dress rehearsal for my high school graduation,
0: the teachers said to us, Graduates, do not wear sandals to your graduation tomorrow. And I was a pot-smoking rebel without a cause, and as soon as they said, don't do it, in my heart, I said, I'm going to do it. Okay. If you were in my church, I were, if, if I were going to your church, and I were pretending to be a Christian, because that's exactly where I was in my own heart at that point, Okay, I wasn't a Christian, but if I were going to your church and you thought that... Uh, that I was a brother in the Lord, and you saw that taking place, you shouldn't come up to me and say, Jeremy, it's a sin to wear sandals. Because it's not true. That statement's not true. Don't confront that issue. Confront pride. Confront defiance to authority. Confront disobedience to your parents. These are biblical categories. Define the sin in terms of biblical categories. So step one, overlook it if possible. Step two, define the sin clearly. Make sure you've got biblical categories for it. Step three, clear out any logs that may be in your eyes. Right, Matthew 7, 5, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eyes. This is crucial in the development of humility in your own heart in being a goer who can go with humility. You have to make sure that you're... The logs are removed from your own eyes. You don't have sin in your own heart, some sort of sense of self-righteousness or some sort of uh, sense of, of proud anger or, uh, or uh, some motive to, oh, this is going to be a good chance to get back at this person for all those years of, of selfishness that I've seen. And, you, know, you have to get the, the log out of your own eye. What you may find, actually, in that process is that as soon as you get the log out of your eye, you might realize this person's not in sin. I'm in sin. And I'm, and I'm misinterpreting what's going on because my own unforgiveness and bitterness is, is not allowing me to have clear enough vision to see the situation properly. Okay, so you've taken now three steps. You haven't said a word to this person yet. This is all heart work. This is all making sure that you know what's going on clearly, biblically. Step number Four prepare your heart, prepare your heart to go. Uh, this is praying for a gentle demeanor, a loving demeanor uh, patience right asking God, please God, will you help me to not have that face that I get when i'm when i 'm Talking to somebody about an awkward situation. Can you help me to just have a a loving, joyful, caring demeanor? Can you help my motives to be for this person's good? Taking some time to prepare the heart. Okay, so that's four steps. No conversation yet. It's a lot of work that's going into this. Fifth step. Okay, now you go. Go have a conversation. And what does that conversation look like? I've got eight steps.
1: Okay. 8 steps.
0: Number 1. Matthew 18:15. Go in private. Go in private. Minimal distractions. It's not embarrassing. Not putting this person on the spot in the front in front of a bunch of people. You go in private. Number 2. Affirm the evidence of God's grace in this person's life. Affirm what you see in there. This is what Paul does at the beginning of all his letters. You remember at the beginning of 1 Corinthians? Paul doesn't, this church is just whacked out, messed up. Paul doesn't launch into the letter with, you're whacked out and messed up. He he starts the letter with affirmation of the grace of God among them. You are gifted. You are called. So, number one, go in private. Number two, be affirming. Number three, share your perceptions, honestly and biblically. Share your perceptions. Recognize that they're perceptions. You may not see the whole story. You may not see everything. So you share, them, you share them as perceptions, but you share them honestly, and you share them biblically. You don't have to make an airtight case. You don't have to, you don't have to just be a lawyer and just prove every point. Just uh, These are some things that I'm concerned about. And, and and then be willing to honestly articulate that. Number five, closely related, four rather. Maintain a spirit of inquiry. Don't assume that you have the God's eye view on the situation. That you have some infallible uh, uh, knowledge of, of what's taking place here. Number five, offer counsel. If... The opportunity arises. You may be at this, at this point in the conversation, the person might just simply say, you know what, you're right. Praise God if that happens. And, and if it does, it, it would be helpful if you had some biblical counsel, some, somewhere to point them. Um, number six, provide space. Don't, ima- don't demand an immediate response. Sometimes you may have unveiled something that this person is just like, whoa, I have never seen this before, but something about it seems right. I need to think about it. Cool. Give, give them some space. Don't demand that they that they come clean right then and there. They might, they have to process some of this. Perhaps number seven, pray for them, and number eight, follow up. We'll just leave it there. Next week or a few days follow up. How's it going? Have we have you had some time to think about what I shared with you? Um, this takes courage. It takes a lot of
1: courage to have this kind of talk. And it takes courage to follow up. So, that's, there's a picture of what it might
0: look like to go in humility. The second crucial ingredient is to be able to receive in humility. We talked a little bit about this in the fall, but I'm just going to review it. Step number one, to be a receiver with humility. Step one, listen carefully and prayerfully. Listen. Take the time to listen carefully and prayerfully. Jonathan Edwards said, even unfair critics can be God's means of grace to you, spotting something in your life maybe that you could work on. Something that you could work on. So make sure that you, you, you do the humble work of saying, okay, I at least want to hear what you're saying. Make sure, let me make sure I'm understanding what you're saying and, and just give it a genuine att- attempt at, at just prayerfully, carefully listening. Lord, will you help me to hear what this person has done? They've taken the time to, uh, to have this kind of conversation with me. Will you help me to at least hear them out? Step number two. Um Well, let me go back to that what's the what 's the main reason you won't hear what this person wants to say?
1: Probably pride, probably pride,
0: especially if you sense they may not quite see the whole situation they may not understand everything. your flesh at that moment does not want does not want to hear the rest of what they have to say. Pride
1: is unwilling to hear
0: criticism. Because that's what's happening in the situation. This, this is a criticism of some, some area of your life. Your flesh is going to hate that. You can count on it. But, but, but this, you have to fight to cultivate the willingness to listen. Okay, step two in receiving. Um, either confess your sin. Or
1: ask for some time to process. Sometimes it might just be crystal clear. You know what? You're right. This is a, this is a
0: grace when this happens. Uh, it's just sweet. It's just sweet. And you know what? God will give us the grace to be willing to have that kind of humility to confess in that situation. You know what? You're right.
1: We need to work on this. If you can't do that, then ask for some time.
0: Say, Thank you. Um, I need some time to process this a little bit. Be be slow to just dismiss. You're off. You know, you're off the mark. I'm sorry, brother, sister. It's just. I'm sorry. I don't see it. Hey, just be slow. You may not see it, and they may not be right. One time, um, I had a friend who. Uh, he, he, for for in several instances in a row, he was asking, um, he was asking if I wanted to be in a discipleship relationship with him. He was asking if we could come over to their house. He was he was asking and inviting, and there was all there was all these invitations. And, and, and my default was, was um, let me talk to Amy. I'll get back to you. And at some point, I, I said that, and he said, um, he said, can I talk to you for a second?
1: Do you feel
0: like you have to ask your wife's permission before you do anything? Because, brother, God God calls you to be the leader of your home, and it seems like you're asking permission from your wife to do things. Now, when I heard that, I knew, or at least I thought, I don't think that's what's happening. But instead of saying, I don't think that's what's happening, let me explain. Um, which in the the moment just didn't seem like a good thing to do. The humble thing seemed to be like, let me just take some time to think about that, and I'll pray about it.
1: And so I went home, took some time to
0: pray about it, took some time to think about it, I talked to Amy about it. Processed. And I went back to him and I said, you know what, brother, thank you for sharing that with me. Here's what I think is going on. I think I'm trying to avail myself of my helper. And I actually intentionally cultivate that in my marriage. Because for one thing, she knows what's going on sometimes better than I do. I don't even know our schedule sometimes. So I kind of default to, I'm not going to make decisions, generally speaking, without getting the insight of my helper. So that's why I do that. But I, 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 I took some time to think about it and pray about it. I don't think I'm ever asking for her
1: permission. Um, But thank you. And that's step number three. Thank you for taking the
0: time and the courage to have that kind of conversation with me because I know that you care about me. I know that you're looking out for my best interest. I know that you're looking out for the health of my family. I know that you're looking out for my... Uh, the health of my leadership in my home. So third step, thank this person. If, if, especially if they've gone through these first four steps that I outlined, you know they've taken a lot of time to think about this. Nobody likes to have this kind of conversation. It's totally awkward. You know it may bring some tension into your relationship, uh, especially if, if, you don't, if you haven't tended to be this, you know, this kind of way with people. You, it's hard. Nobody wants to do this. But if somebody goes through the effort of having this kind of conversation with you, thank them. They love you. They're willing to do the hard thing. They're willing to be biblical. Okay, so, that's what it might look like to have this initial one-on-one, in-private type of conversation. I hope that's helpful for you. It certainly was helpful for me as I was thinking through it this week. And if it's clear that the person is indeed in clear sin, unrepentant, three times over, with increasing levels of accountability, then they must finally, Paul says, be removed. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, when we arrive on the scene in 1 Corinthians, that's where we're at. It's time for removal. We've hit the breaking point. The man who is sleeping with his father must be removed, and that's the point that Paul concludes with at the end of verse 13. Okay? Um, purge the evil person from among you. More specifically in this passage, Paul is clarifying a misunderstanding. Paul's clarifying a misunderstanding. So let's dive into this text and let's see what the misunderstanding is. Because we're going to see here that there are limits to church discipline. Let's read in verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. There's a previous letter, Paul had said, I don't want you to associate with sexually immoral people, and there's confusion in the church about what he meant by that. The church seems to have understood this to mean that they should stay away from sexually immoral people who are outside the church. That's going to make buying groceries really hard. It's going to make it really difficult to go to your job in the marketplace and have interactions with Corinthians. Because Cor- Corinth, you'll remember, is as Gordon Fee has, has said, Corinth was kind of like the, the mixture of New York City, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas, all in one place. It was totally corrupt. A wicked city. There's all kinds of sexual immorality and civic corruption, greed and swindling, all kinds of religious idolatry at levels that we probably can't even imagine, Uh, carousing and drunkenness, a wicked, wicked city. And Paul wrote to the church and said, don't associate with
1: sexually immoral people.
0: Now, what Paul did not mean by that is verse 10, or at least clarified in verse 10. Here he goes, clarify, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, since then, you would need to go out of the world. If Paul had meant, stop your associations with the sexually immoral of this world, then the ridiculous conclusion would be, well, you're going to have to leave the world. That's not what Paul meant. That's not what Christians are supposed to do with regards to their relationships with people outside the church in the world, people who are trapped in sin. We're not supposed to leave the world. We're not supposed to cut ourselves off from associations with unbelievers. There's a certain type of Christian mentality that pulls away from society. I should know. I spent the better part of a decade really not clear on this issue and not sure how... I was supposed to interact with people that I'm working with and going to school with who were clearly living godless lives. There's a certain type of mentality that pulls away. And rather than being Christians who are salt in the world or light in the world, we mistakenly can think sometimes that our call to be holy is a call to be distant or detached or unengaged from the world. So, we try as much as possible to do the very thing that Paul is suggesting as a ridiculous option. We try to leave the world. You have entire little communities who have failed to hear Paul's point right here. They've removed themselves from society in order to build alternative Christian societies. Christian townships, Christian little cultures. Okay, that's, the, that's kind of the extreme of this mentality. We see some of it in the Anabaptist tradition. But there are some more subtle ways that it happens in evangelical culture right now. Right? Many people do the same type of thing by trying to create Christian alternatives to any number of civic institutions. Michael Horton calls this the building of the Christian ghetto. Christian alternatives to civic institutions. Perhaps like the Christian coffee shop might be a good example. The Christian skate park. Okay. That's not what it means when we say that the Christian is called to holiness. And it's not what Paul meant when he told the Corinthians that they're not supposed to associate with sexually immoral people. What did he mean then? Verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual... That's the crucial qualifier. Anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. The call to abstain from association, surprisingly, is the call to abstain from associating with those who are recognized as Christians, but not living like Christians. Shocking statement that Paul makes for the community of love. And if you want to hear more nuances on that point, I'd point you to the last two sermons, perhaps even especially last week's sermon. Okay,
1: verses 12 and 13 now back up the point that
0: Paul's making. Here's, here's, here's what he's done. He said, when I wrote, don't associate with sexually immoral people, I didn't mean people of the world. What I meant was people in the church. Now I'm going to back that up by giving you
1: some theology. Let's read verses 12 and
0: 13. For what, do I, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside Purge the evil person from among you. Notice in verse 12. For. Because. He's grounding what he just said. There are certain behaviors, church body, that you must have toward outsiders, or not have toward outsiders. There are certain behaviors that you must have toward those who claim to be insiders because the church has a certain responsibility with regards to the issue of judging. In other words, here's a glimpse into the theology that lies beneath the practice of church discipline and the limits of church discipline. There's a paradigm beneath the method. Paul isn't just making up arbitrary rules for the church. How to do church? Who to be friends with? Who you shouldn't be friends with? Who should be in the church? Who can't be in the church? He's not just making these things up. He's deeply theological. And his actions in shepherding the church in Corinth are rooted in the fundamental paradigms that understand the nature of what a church is and what a church is not. Methods always flow out of deeper paradigms, or ought to always flow out of deeper paradigms, a deeper vision, a bigger vision of what's taking place. I remember in my undergraduate years, the, uh, the first two years, I just didn't really have any clue what I wanted to do. I didn't know what I wanted to study. And so I took some general eds, and there was just no rhyme or reason for which general eds I was taking. And then I had some electives, of course. And uh, so I had a Greek class, and a music reading class, and an acting class. I hate acting but i took the class some of my friends were
1: in it about year 2 what's the big problem i have to declare a major and there's no co- coherence at all to what i've been doing because there's
0: no underlying vision for where i'm going no coherence so i ended i, was, I go to my counselor what should i what can i do with all this stuff
1: and they're like i don't know <laughs> You get a liberal arts degree. Okay, so I got a Bachelor
0: of Arts in liberal arts with an emphasis, catch this, in arts and humanities. It was the most generic degree available at Colorado State University. Why? Because there's no coherence. There was no vision. There was no rhyme or reason for what I was doing. Paul's not arbitrary in his shepherding of what this church should be doing. It's not arbitrary. His counsel for how the church ought to act in the church's relationship with society is carefully thought out. And on the basis of the underlying paradigms, he then says, okay, here's what you need to do. Michael Horton, who's the professor of systematic theology at Westminster Seminary in Escondido, California, says, the great strength of American evangelical churches, or a great strength of American evangelical churches, is that they are so active. They're just doers. It's, a, it's the getter, it's the getter done mentality he talks about. He says one of the great weaknesses of the American evangelical church is that they do a lot of activity before they take the time to be reflective about what it is that they're called to do. I was reading this week in Proverbs 812, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. Wisdom and prudence are roommates. Wisdom in your activity comes with prudence. Because you're taking the time to think, and it's so easy to act before we think. And it's easy to assume incorrect views and mentalities of Christian involvement in society because we haven't done the hard work of thinking through the paradigms. Not so with Paul. That's not what's going on with Paul. It's what the Corinthians seem to be doing. Now, whether or not they're, they're just not paying attention to Paul, or whether or not they haven't taken the time to think through it, or whether or not they're... We don't know what's going on, but they have a false understanding of what they're supposed to do. And it's really easy to have a false understanding of how the church should interact with society. Why? Probably because there are lots of variables. You read your Bible, and you'll see that you have to take into account lots of variables when you consider the church's involvement in society. In fact, if you're reading your Bible cover to cover, you might, you might seem to think you're getting mixed messages about how God's people are supposed to interact with society. right? And not only are there lots of variables, but there are lots of variables that have to be rightly interpreted. So take this for example. We've talked about this a little bit. How about
1: the fact that Israel was a
0: theocracy? Israel was a theocracy. There was was no distinction between God's holy realm and society. The whole land was Yahweh's. The military was Yahweh's. The, The crops were Yahweh's. The national festivals, mandatory national festivals in the land of Israel. And we don't live in a theocracy. Ah, things have changed. And because of that, we have to be careful how we interpret certain Old Testament passages that were addressed to an Israelite nation that made no separation between the temple and the state. This is a variable that must be carefully interpreted. It has implications for how we interpret the Old Testament teaching on civic engagement because it's addressed to a theocratic people. So whether it's issues of civic justice or whether it's issues of religious idolatry, or whether it's issues of military prosperity, you have to remember that we don't live in a theocracy, and it will impact how you read and apply your Bible, which will make a difference in the way that you think of how the church or the Christian should interact with society. You may remember in a sermon last fall entitled, uh, The Gospel in the City, I talked about... um, These things, pointed these out, for example. In ancient Israel, under the theocracy, if you blaspheme the name of Yahweh, you are to be killed, Leviticus 24. If you worship a false god, you are to be killed, Deuteronomy 17. If you commit adultery, you are to be killed, Deuteronomy 22. Amy and I were reading in Exodus last night, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. If your child strikes you, he
1: must die. Whoa! We don't live in a theocracy. So don't kill
0: your co-workers when you find out that they've been cheating with their spouses. It makes a difference. And I'm pointing out the obvious ones to make the point. Because there are more subtle ones that require a lot of thinking lots of variables to take into account. How about this variable? Proverbs 13:20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the the companion of fools will suffer harm.
1: Your best friend a fool somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus? Someone who doesn't fear God? Now the proverbs are are especially uh, Directed at helping youth. Young men and young women. Choose your friends wisely. Parents, prepare your kids to choose their friends wisely. That's a variable. But
0: Jesus, Luke 7.34, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus spends His time with sinners. How do you... How do you... Put all these pieces together. Or here's another one. Paul says to the church, purge the evil person from among you. Our passage today. Okay, what am I supposed to do? Hang out with sinners or throw them out in the street? How does this work? Or how about this one? Romans 13.1. Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Government, government is instituted by God. So does that mean that the human government is somehow part of God's kingdom? Apparently not, because you go to John 18.36 and Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. Who's he talking to? The governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. Okay, What do you do with all this stuff? How does the Christian interact with society? So many variables that at the end of the day just leave you going, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Am I supposed to kill my neighbor, or am I supposed to love my neighbor? In some ways, okay, right, the answer should be obvious, but sometimes you read your Old Testament, you're like, I don't know what's going on here. Are you tracking with me? This is complex. I've I've untied a lot of, there's a lot of loose ends out there, and I'm not going to try and tie them all up. If you want to hear my attempt to build a paradigm, that tries to account for these things, then go back to the sermon, The Gospel in the City. I try to build a paradigm that tries to account for these things. And uh, I'll give a couple of things, hopefully, that will bring it together, maybe some of it together at the end of the sermon today. But, um, yeah, go to the website. Listen to that again if you want the big picture of how does this work for us today. But it's no wonder. It's no wonder that it's easy to assume incorrect views of christian involvement in society and here's the point it takes some hard thinking it does it just does it takes hard thinking about the nature of the kingdom of god it takes hard thinking about the nature of civic society it takes hard thinking about the calling of the christian as an individual it takes hard thinking about the calling of the church as an institution it takes hard thinking about our present phase of redemptive history it takes some hard Thinking. And it's so easy to act before you think. And Before you know it, you're two years into a program and you have no idea where this ship is headed.
1: Hard thinking. And God is thankfully sovereign
0: over those times when we as churches or as individuals start acting before we start thinking. God's sovereign over that. He's good. He uses it. Praise God.
1: But The call is to be
0: a good thinker about these things. And that's exactly what Paul was. He had a clear understanding of how to interact with society, how to shepherd a church in their interactions within society, within the church. Why? Because he had a clear understanding of what a church was and what a church wasn't. He understood the reality of the church's call to bear the keys of the kingdom, which we talked about two weeks ago. Paul understood that the church is expected not to act like the world and that the world should not be expected to act like the church. What do I have to do with judging the world? Church is not supposed to act like the world. Let me just break that up into two parts. Church is not supposed to act like the world. We talked about this last week. We've been changed, right? Right? We're a new humanity. We're from a different country, from a heavenly country. There's a different thing taking place. The Bible says that here we are aliens. We're outsiders. We're sojourners. We are different. We have a heavenly identity. And because of that, we must live here and especially in this community, in a unique way that gives testimony to the fact that we're not from this place. This is not our home any longer. It is, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge purge, purge the evil person from among you so that you maintain that new identity? Church is not like the world. But the flip side of the coin is that the world is not like the church. The world is not like the church. I have a friend, his name is Donnie, and we, we, were, we were quite close in high school, and at Donnie's house, they had a pool table, and Donnie taught us this, this important concept, both with, with pool and with uh, darts. It's a concept of house rules. So we'd go over to Donnie, there'd be five or six, we'd go over to Donnie's house, there'd be five or six of us, and we would... Um, Donnie would play the first game with whoever, and then the, the next two guys would be kind of like, can we take a turn? And Donnie would say, house rules, winner stays. Meaning, whoever wins the game stays on the table. They play the next game. Kind of like, well, that's not fair. You guys just had a turn. It should be our turn. House rules, winner stays. So if you wanted to play and keep playing, you had to win. House rules. If you don't want to play by house rules, go up to Gordon's Record Store. They've got pool tables. You can take turns at Gordon's. But at Donnie's house, we don't take turns. Why not? House rules. Okay. The reason the world doesn't have to come under the rules of the Christian church is because they are house rules. There are house rules. That's how, that's how we do it here. This, th- these are the standards of the conduct within our home. The standards that flow from the nature of our family. The standards that flow from the teachings of, of our father. They're unique to us because we have been born of a parenthood from another country. A country that the world has never visited and a country that the world would never understand. Okay, so when I go to Gordon's record store to play pool, I don't expect the earthly city to play by my heavenly house rules my house rules. Why would they? Right? They don't know my father. They're not members of my family. They aren't part of our household. If unbelievers don't want to pray the Lord's Prayer at the high school graduation or at halftime at the football game, why would I expect them to? And if they make a big stink about it, why would I demand you must pray to my Lord? Why would I demand that? If they're living lives of sinful indulgence, as though they were dead in their sins and blind to the glory of Jesus and totally void of the Holy Spirit, well, guess what? It makes sense. They're dead in their sins. They're blind to the glory of Jesus. They have no Holy Spirit. It's because it's the reality of who they are. And our job as a church is not to make them pretend that they are Christians and act like they belong to God. The church's job with regards to its relationship to society is not to perform a church-operated, disciplinary, corrective, punitive project that tries to bring society under God's house rules. The whole take this country back for Jesus mentality is not biblical. It's an attempt to... Apply house
1: rules at the record store.
0: Now, some people might be objecting right now, in some ways, or at least just going, okay, well, does that mean that we don't do or say anything? Like we do our Christian thing here, and then we go out there and we just don't do or say anything? No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that. Let me give you two things that you do when you're
1: outside the house. Number one,
0: we seek the welfare of society within our various callings. We seek the welfare of society. We seek it. Remember when Israel is in exile, they're in Babylon awaiting
1: their arrival in God's city. They're going back to Jerusalem. They're waiting in exile to go home to God's city. It's a redemptive historical picture of where we are right now. We're we're in Babylon. We're waiting to go home. Only it's not the old Jerusalem, it's the new Jerusalem that we're waiting for. We're in exile, waiting to go home. It's not our home. But listen to how God instructs Israel while they're in Babylon. Jeremiah
0: 29, 4-7. Seek the welfare of Babylon, where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare will be you will I'm sorry. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. We pursue the welfare of society and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Now we're not trying to turn Babylon into Jerusalem. Do you catch the difference? Yes, we do. We seek the welfare of society. We're not we're not trying to say this this is God's city. We're not trying to turn Babylon into God's city. We're not trying to make Babylon play by our house rules, but we are doing what we think is going to be best for everyone in our common society. We're pursuing it. We're supporting and pursuing what's good. And just, and moral, and beautiful, and helpful. Not in an attempt to establish a theocracy. We don't expect them to embrace the distinctives of our our redeemed community. They don't want to sing a psalm before the work day. Well, why would they? It just doesn't make sense. But we are seeking the welfare of this city. We are wanting to be salt. In the midst of it, we are wanting to be light in the midst of it. You, 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 you have, the, I have this image of of the boss who says, "You know what? This guy who works for me,
1: or this gal who works for me, just solid.
0: Just he's he's on time, he's full of integrity. He's honest. He's kind. What a what a light in the office! Might even say those words. What a light in the office!" Do good to the city. Seek
1: its welfare. The second thing we do is we proclaim truth. We proclaim truth to society. We proclaim salvation from a coming judgment. That is, we proclaim the gospel to society. We warn the
0: world of a coming judgment. As part, okay if we 're going to proclaim salvation from a coming judgment, we have to proclaim a coming judgment that 's part of it We warn the world of a coming judgment and that God is going to bring upon ju- bring upon those who do not have their sins forgiven a judgment for their sins. When Paul is on trial before a governor named felix in luke twenty four twenty five Luke says, Paul reasoned about righteousness and self control and the coming judgment. So you have to talk about a coming judgment. Okay? So question, what does Paul mean then in 1 Corinthians 5.12 when he says, what do I have to do with judging the world?
1: How can we not judge the world and talk about a coming judgment? And the answer is, there is
0: a difference a very important difference, a world of difference between being God's voice of coming future judgment and being the instrument that is enacting God's judgment upon the world. There's, there's a, a difference between being the voice of a coming judgment and being the instrument who is delivering the judgment. The church's job right now is not to enforce God's judgment on the world. That's why we don't kill idolaters. We are not enforcers of judgment. We don't carry out any sort of church-performed punitive action upon the world. God will do that when He comes. This is not the time for the people of God to deliver God's judgment. It is a time to tell the world that that judgment is coming. And to proclaim to them that for a brief season there is an opportunity to escape it, that's what the church is called to do. A brief moment in history when we proclaim a coming judgment. This is different than when Israel went into the land of Canaan. When Israel goes into the land of Canaan in the, in the conquest, Joshua is leading the army. What are they doing? They are delivering God's judgment on the land. I can hear the hooves of the horses on the border of Canaan right now. There is
1: a judgment coming. It's coming. Only
0: one people have been called in this brief period to go declare to the people before it comes, it's coming. And He offers amnesty. Rebels! Who have defied King Jesus. Jesus says, right now, My people go into the world and tell them the judgment is coming, but before I come, I offer them forgiveness of their sins. Who, who is going to tell our parents, our brothers and sisters, our children, our neighbors, our co-workers, who is going to tell them that Jesus offers uh, uh, forgiveness for their sins? Who is going to tell them that the judgment is coming and that before it comes, you can be freed so that when He comes, you can be among His people? Who is going to tell them if we don't? Answer, Nobody! Nobody! is going to tell the world.
1: It's the church's job. It's our job. We must tell them we're the only people, the only people that have been assigned this role. And if we go silent, they perish because the judgment's coming. God, would
0: You be pleased to burden our hearts with the brevity of our opportunity to proclaim the Gospel to this broken and dead world of traitors and rebels and to announce to them Your gracious offer to forgive them and to receive them to Yourself. As your own children will you give us a sense of the gravity of the brevity of our time because you are coming soon your word tells us you're coming soon help us to not be lazy and unwilling to proclaim Jesus is coming back sin is real death is real eternity is real hell is real and forgiveness is complete and restoration is a genuine offer and salvation is possible only in one name. Help us to live lives of light-bearing, salty influence so that people look at our lives and say there's something about them that's different. They live differently. He lives differently. He lives for different purposes. She lives for different purposes. And then would you give us the boldness to combine that with a gentle and loving and influential and compelling ability to speak words of gospel promise so that sinners can be reconciled to God and flee from the judgment that's to come. Give your church swift feet and loud voices and save many. Save many here on the East Coast. Bring revival. A people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now all of us have failed to be nearly as zealous as we ought. And we need this Savior as much as anybody. Amen? To which he says, I am gladly your Savior. And it is his pleasure to free you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, strengthen your hearts to stand back up and to walk in newness of life and be ministers of the gospel of God's reconciliation with man. May we be that people for the glory of his name, for the growth of the church for the salvation of the lost, and for the eternal happiness of the redeemed. If you need some time to talk and pray, just come up. Chase here, I'm here. Grab someone that you trust. Talk, pray, confess. Be humble before the Lord and see what he does among his people. In Jesus' name, you're dismissed.